Welcome to the ATS section on Medical Education podcast on academic writing, the discussion section. Welcome back, everyone. We'll continue our series on academic writing with the last letter of the IMRAD acronym model, the D, for the discussion section. Let's discuss, pun intended, its importance to the paper, suggestions on included components, as well as structuring of the section, and end with some general tips for success and caveats to avoid. And as I've said in past podcasts from this series, start out with reviewing author instructions from the journal you plan to submit to, as they will be helpful when you are crafting the different sections of the paper. So when it comes to the discussion section, it is often described as the heart of the paper, where your thoughts and passion finally have the chance to speak to the reader and leave them with the lasting impact and implications of your study. And it's for this reason that the discussion can be the most difficult section of the paper to write. You have to understand the message, the story you want to leave the reader with. So why don't we talk about the content of the discussion section, along with a possible structure for the section, at the same time, since they go hand in hand together. A couple of good checklists for content are the strobe and consort checklists, which detail suggested content for the discussion section. And I'll list those checklists along with relevant articles on the webpage for this podcast. A good place to start your discussion is with a brief summary of the key findings from the study and relationship to the study objectives. Now, this isn't a rehash of the results. Remember that in the intro section, you specified study question or questions. In the method section, you detailed the methodology you were going to use to answer those questions and then presented data results in the results section. Start your first paragraph of the discussion by putting everything together now, by showing the reader how the results answer your study questions, positively, negatively, whatever. And if there are multiple study questions and multiple salient findings, you can subdivide these into separate paragraphs. For example, let's say we were performing a nurse-led vent weaning study and were interested in duration of ventilation and length of ICU stay with the new protocol. In the results, we showed these results for the new protocol as well as our regular practice protocol. Now in the discussion, we could lead with, in this study, we found that a nurse-led ventilatory weaning protocol, as compared with standard of care protocol, was associated with shorter duration of mechanical ventilation and shorter length of ICU stay. The point is to start by using the results to answer the study questions. Next, move on to discuss your interpretation of the results. This includes how your study fits with other studies before it. How is your study new? How does it advance the literature and what is known on this topic? If your results are novel or different than prior studies, highlight those differences and offer possible explanations. Even if your study is just confirming a prior study, are there ways that this study expands what is known? And this naturally lends itself to discussing the implications of the study and its results. This has to do with the importance of the results and the generalizability of the findings, potentially to other patients or disease processes, different settings, different centers, etc. You may have found something in one interstitial lung disease. Does that apply to other ILDs? 
or studying the outpatient internal medicine clinic, does that have relevance and applicability to pulmonary clinic, to the emergency department, to the inpatient wards, or the ICU setting? Your study demonstrated success using simulation for teaching a procedural skill. Can this same process be used for other procedural skill teaching, etc.? Overall, we're moving in this inverted funnel approach from a narrow to broad discussion. We started by answering our study question in a very black and white way, then started broadening to delve into the nuances of interpreting those results, and broadened further to discuss the importance and implications of the research as a whole. Now with the interpretation and implications, we also need to delve into the limitations of the study and discuss potential biases in the study. And it's important to be as honest and transparent as possible because if you're not, often the reader will already recognize some of these biases. And if they aren't mentioned by you, well then they're going to think either you're unable to critically appraise your own work or worse, you're trying to sweep limitations and biases under the rug and hope no one recognizes it. Neither is a good look. Now with biases, you're really discussing validity issues in your study. So in, in regards to internal validity, there may be issues with your study design, there may be issues with your measurement, measurement biases, imprecision of the measurement, or even power issues, right? So maybe your, your study was not properly powered to be able to see a difference, but these types of things need to be mentioned. Then there are external validity concerns, things like sample bias, selection bias, and also lack of generalizability as well. And it's important to discuss potential confounders as well. So if you created an educational video on proper hand hygiene and you found a decrease in incidence of nosocomial C. diff colitis subsequently, you need to also talk about any other infection control interventions that were ongoing at the hospital simultaneously that could have affected the results. Also, in addition to identifying potential biases, it's really nice to also try and extrapolate the direction of the effect and the magnitude of the effect of the biases on the study results. Okay. So far in your discussion section, you've discussed the results that answer your study questions, interpreting the results, implications and generalizability of the results, and discuss limitations and biases of the study. Now that you've highlighted what the study has added to the literature and the limitations of the study, that leads logically into discussing next steps for further research. And by all means, please don't just say, further research is necessary to confirm these findings, or these findings need to be reproduced in a larger cohort and possibly a double-blind randomized controlled trial. Great. Not, not super helpful. I think you can be, as an author and researcher, much more thoughtful than that. Provide specifics. So if you found that a five-day steroid burst was equally effective as a two-week steroid taper for COPD exacerbation in patients presenting to an outpatient pulmonary clinic, maybe the next steps in your research would be to reproduce the study in different settings, maybe patients presenting and discharged from the emergency department or actual patients on the inpatient setting, or expanding to include patients with other obstructive lung diseases and exacerbations such as asthma. Or maybe, in subgroup analysis, you notice a small population for whom a two-week course was better. Maybe studying that group and trying to better understand prognostic factors of who really needs two weeks of therapy would be useful information and of interest to the reader. And now it's time to conclude the results. You want to leave the reader with your overall take-home message. Pretend this is the only sentence of the discussion that your reader will actually read.
So you want that sentence to sum up the main conclusion emanating from your study. Conceptually, this could be, hey, I solved something, figured something out, like this particular mutation results in X, case closed. Or it could be something more tempered, more strongly suggesting or implying, more possible or perhaps likely. Something like, in conclusion, fourth-year medical students improve their knowledge, attitudes, and skills through a local one-week end-of-the-year boot camp, suggesting the importance of such primer courses to help transition medical students to residents. Or it could be particularly in the setting of a negative study, more of a concluding line detailing more research that needs to be done to answer the study question. More importantly, remember that these are the last words you'll be imparting to the reader, so really hit home your take-home message overall. Now that we've discussed content and structure, let's turn our attention to some tips and caveats to avoid. The first tip would be that if you're having trouble with starting the discussion section or, or starting writing it, look at the discussion section of other similar papers. That'll give you more of a concrete blueprint from which to draw. Also, make sure co-authors review your discussion, obviously, but really to ensure that everyone is on the same page regarding the most important findings from your study, as well as the implications and overall message emanating from your study. And it would be good to have others outside of your study review it as well, mainly to ensure that it's logical and methodical and it's easily understandable from people who are not directly involved with the study. Some caveats. So we already discussed not rehashing the results in the discussion section, but that also applies to repeating material from the introduction as well as introducing new results. Don't talk about new data you're obtaining that readers don't have access to. Second, avoid both over- and underreaching with your interpretations and implications. An example of underreaching is to say that treatment A showed improvement in quality of life compared to treatment B in this specific disease process, and just leave it there. Yes, that's what your study found, but maybe you could take it a step further and offer the next logical statement, like, these results suggest changing practice patterns to utilize treatment A as first-line therapy in this population. In other words, yes, you found a difference, but that difference has clinical implications which lead logically from your results and that you really should expound upon. An example of overreaching, classically, is suggesting causality where really there's just, at this point, an association. For example, you find a higher incidence of spontaneous pneumothorax in patients with a BMI less than 20. So you could report that a BMI less than 20 is associated with pneumothorax and you'd be on solid ground. However, if you use statements like BMI less than 20 results in pneumothorax, or even the more tempered BMI less than 20 increases risk of pneumothorax, now you're suggesting causality, right? Results in, increases risk of. So right, the latter suggests that if I fatten up people, then their risk of pneumothorax would go down. Is that true? So just be careful with your wording. And uh, may, I might even suggest that you have it looked over by a statistician or someone who's a little bit more statistically rigorous, just to ensure that your interpretations are actually on sound footing. There's a BMC Medical Research Methodology article from 2018 by Michael Hoffler that delves into integrating substantive and statistical expertise into writing a discussion section that's worth a read. I'll list it in the references on the webpage for this podcast. Next tip or caveat is not to forget discussing similar studies, particularly when there is conflicting findings. 
readers want to know, and it's a great opportunity to highlight how your study is different. Maybe your study design was different, your measurement tools more precise, a larger group, etc. Now that doesn't mean trashing prior studies either. Stay civil and professional. The last pitfall I'll mention is confusing statistical significance with clinical significance. So you might find a statistical difference in measurements from two different groups, but if the effect size is small, or if the difference is tiny and within the error of the measurement tool, this difference might not be clinically meaningful. For example, you have two similar groups of IPF patients and give one a purple pill and the other a placebo pill and measure six-minute walk distance. You find that the group that takes the purple pill can walk farther than the other group and the p-value is less than 0.05. Yay! Awesome! But wait a minute. What if the actual magnitude of difference between groups is only three feet? Taking yet another pill, the costs associated with the pill, maybe potential for more side effects, is that worth an extra three feet? Now, you can still report the difference, but you need to be honest about the interpretation and the importance of the study finding. Last tip, practice, practice, and more practice. While that is true, if that were the end of this podcast, that would essentially be like ending the discussion with more research is needed, of course. Instead, I will end the podcast with take-home points, so it will be the last thing you remember. So we talked about the discussion being the heart of the paper, your opportunity to make understandable and interpretable the result findings, and placing those findings within appropriate context by discussing their implications and generalizability, of how your research advances the conversation on this research topic, and yet being honest about the limitations of your study, and looking forward to next logical research that can emanate from your study. And we finished with tips for success, caveats to avoid, and don't forget to conclude the discussion with a strong statement of what you really want readers to remember. Thanks for listening. Hope this was useful. The last podcast of this academic writing series will focus on things like the title, the abstract, and other odds and ends. Stay tuned.